0: Tonight, we're going to talk about more substitutes. We're going to expand this idea of substitutes. Now, in your Bible, Jeremiah chapter 2, tucked away again in your Old Testament, detour through that table of contents if you need to, Jeremiah chapter 2, and in your workbook on page 8. Uh, for years... I know this is hard to believe, but work with me. For years, I was a skinny guy. I really was. I could just eat anything and everything, and then those early 40s, well, let's just say things began to stick, all right? And I knew I needed to change my eating habits, and because I got a sweet tooth, I had to start investigating some of those sugar substitutes that are out there. Now, I did some research. And I found that, unfortunately, those sugar substitutes, uh, they can have a a bad effect on you, right? There can be, again, those uh, uh, effects that you didn't really anticipate. For instance, as I began to do some research, I found that some of them were linked to cancer-causing agents and uh, others to the onset of early arthritis. And then there was uh, that third one. What was that? Oh, yeah, memory loss, all right? And so uh, now you know my, my substitute of choice. Now, here's what I learned about substitutes. Number one, they're never as good as the real thing. You can always taste the difference, can't you? But number two, they often bring with them unwanted side effects. Unwanted side effects that are actually destructive to us. Our thirst truth tonight We must identify and turn from our substitutes in order to experience lasting satisfaction. What are your substitutes? What have you been substituting for that real thing, the living water, eternal life, the abundant life that Christ makes possible for all who are his children? Exodus 20, now again, just keep your finger there in Jeremiah, we'll get there in just a moment. Exodus 20, a very well-known passage, the first listing of what we call the Ten Commandments. Again, God says, uh, I'm going to make it simple for you. God is not a simple God, but we are simple beings. So he deals with us in a simple and understandable way. And so God says, here are Ten things I expect from you. And each of these things in some way reflect the nature and the character of God. So God says, if you want to be with me, you want to be like me, you must embrace these things. So we begin with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, an idol. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now think about it. Put it in perspective. Ten commandments. The first two deal exclusively with idolatry. You shall have no other God before me. And by the way, that language, not just in front of me, but besides me. God says, I'm not going to share you with anyone or anything. And then secondly, the prohibition against specifically creating an idol. So of the ten, the first two That's 20%. One-fifth of the 10 things God says I expect deal exclusively with the sin of idolatry. And that someone has rightfully observed you can't really break any of the other eight without first breaking the first two. Now, let's say you and I were talking before the service tonight. You said, hey, Greg, I'm curious, what's our subject tonight? And I said, tonight we're going to preach about idolatry. You probably wouldn't say it out loud, but you'd be thinking idolatry. Now, that's kind of a strange topic. I mean, isn't that why we send missionaries to far-off places because those folks are so involved in idolatry? But this is America, a quote-unquote Christian nation. Why do we need to be thinking about idolatry? Well, the problem is you and I have too narrow an understanding of idolatry. You think you don't have issues with idolatry because you have too narrow a vision. You say, Greg, I've not offered any animal sacrifices outside on the barbecue. You know, I don't have a a Buddha in the backyard. I'm not running around the house chanting Hare Krishna. Well, here's our working definition of idolatry. Idolatry is anything we value equally or more than we value God. Now, using this definition, my friends, idolatry is alive and well in the United States of America and in Greensboro. Think of it in this sense, a quote from Paul David Tripp, the desire for a good thing has become a bad thing when that desire has become ruling things. See, here's what's so deceptive about idolatry. Anything and everything has the potential to become an idol in my life. Even the so-called good things, if I have allowed them to usurp the rightful place of Jesus as my exclusive Lord, even the good things become bad things, become idols. Because again, I have removed Christ from that place of exclusive lordship. One of the reformers, Calvin, made this observation, the heart of man is an idol-making factory. He's right. Because of our fallenness, because of our sinful bent, we are prone to fabricating idols. And anything has that potential in our lives. We were leading a conference in southern Mississippi, Now, in our longer meetings, we actually have a public testimony service at the end of those meetings. This was a county seat First Baptist Church, a very uh, well known established church. That pastor had to stand before his congregation on a Sunday morning and confess that he had made the church his idol. He was so eager for the pleasure, he was so eager for the approval of his congregation that He had begun plagiarizing other men's sermons, preaching other men's sermons because he wanted the accolades of his congregation. So he had to humble himself and confess to his people that sin. And to their credit, they forgave him, indicated so by a standing ovation. All right, you're with me in Jeremiah chapter 2. Go down to verse 4. Now let me, again, before we just jump cold into the text, let me give you just a little background here. For about 140 years, Israel has been battling idolatry and losing the battle. For 140 years, God has been warning his people, sending prophet after prophet, the Old Testament prophet, God's spokesman. I think you're in Daniel right now on Sunday night, one of those Old Testament prophets who, again, spoke about the sin of idolatry. Well, for 140 years, God has patiently waited for his people to repent. There were seasons of revival and repentance, but ultimately they went right back to that sin, and finally God says no more. Now, I know you're not big on dates, but 586 B.C., an important date, God's patience ran out. He allowed a neighboring empire, the Babylonian empire, to come in and conquer the city of Jerusalem. That beautiful temple constructed by Solomon was left in ruins. The walls were torn down. Masses of the people were killed. Masses more were taken off into captivity. And Jeremiah was left with the unenviable task then of helping people come to grips with this incredible national calamity. So they come to Jeremiah with this simple question, why did God do this to us? Why would God allow this to happen? And, of course, Jeremiah says, you were warned, you were warned, you were warned. So it's in that spirit we pick up Jeremiah 2, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Now, pause just a moment. I find it interesting that, and, and parents, here's a good coaching tip for you. When you have to approach your children in a disciplinary situation, rather than leading with accusations that harden the will, instead lead with questions. Questions that speak to the conscience. So God, as the, as, as the perfect parent, starts asking questions. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? Now, obviously, it's a facetious question because the wrong was not in God. But that's the way he's asking the question. What did I do wrong? Did I not keep my promises? Did I not bless you with abundance? Did I not protect you? Have I not been to you a faithful God? But your ancestors were dissatisfied with me. In a sense, they chose to trade me in for other gods. He continues, they went after worthlessness and became worthless. The New American Standard translates that. They walked after emptiness and became empty. Now, let me help you with worship. Two insights. Number one, everybody worships. Everybody worships. We worship because God created us to worship in our very DNA. He imprinted this desire to worship. Now, everybody worships, but not everybody worships the true and living God. We worship other gods or other things or other people or positions or possessions. We'll look at how that often fleshes itself out. But everybody worships. Now, number two, we become like what we worship. See, that's why when we worship God, we become like God. We become his image bearers. So he asked the question, they walked after emptiness and then they became empty. When you worship an empty idol, then you become like that which you worship empty. Now, skip down to verse 11 with me. Again, more questions. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Again, pause. The question, has a nation changed its gods? That's what you did. I wasn't what you wanted me to be, so you traded me in for other gods. That is idolatry. And how does God respond to idolatry? Verse 12, be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. God takes our idolatry very seriously. We saw there in the Exodus 20 text, he says, I'm a jealous God. Now, typically, we think of the emotion of jealousy as a negative emotion because our jealousy, tainted by our sin and selfishness, usually is destructive and selfish. But God's perfect, holy jealousy simply says, I'm not going to share you with anyone or anything else. My people have committed two evils. Now comes the accusations. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. By the way, there's our thirst theme again. Notice how God describes himself. Echoes of John 4 from this morning. God describes himself as a fountain of living waters. My people have forsaken me. And here's the second accusation. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns. All right, I read that and I say, well, what's a cistern? So here's a picture. And the soft limestone rock in the Middle East, what they're able to do is to carve out these huge holding tanks. Now, it doesn't rain often, so when it rains, you want to capture that water and live on it for months And they carve these channels into the rock, and literally hundreds and hundreds of gallons can come into one of these cisterns during a rainstorm. Here's an underground cistern. You can see they've carved the steps, and as the water level drops, they're able to get down to the cistern. Now, here's what God is saying. You've rejected me, the fountain of living waters, and you've created your own cistern, a substitute, he said, but it's a broken cistern. It doesn't work let me give you a modern update let's say you're at the gym working out and you're uh, you know you've been working real hard you're kind of cotton mouth you're very dry a lot of sweat you're getting dehydrated all right there on the wall just a few feet away there's the water fountain the push of a button and you have access to cold filtered water instead you walk past the water fountain you walk out the doors you walk into the street You get down on your knees and you stick your mouth in the gutter and you drink from the filth of the street. That's what he's saying to the people. You've rejected God, the fountain of living waters, and you've tried to satisfy yourself with that, which will never satisfy you. So what does modern-day idolatry look like in 21st century America? Let me just touch on some potential American idols. Number one, the idol of pleasure. The idol of pleasure. Examples would be food, sex, exercise, alcohol, tobacco, prescription, non-prescription drugs. Now, you say, Greg, wait a minute. I look at that list. There's some, there's some good things on that list. Remember our working definition of idolatry? Even a good thing, if it takes the place of Christ as a ruling thing in my life, It has the potential to be a bad thing. Philippians 3.19, Paul writes, For many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God, little g, their God is their belly. In other words, they live to gratify the basic desires, physical desires of their body. For some in the room, I don't know who, but for some in the room, the phrase comfort food doesn't just describe a, a style of southern cuisine. You find your comfort in food, don't you? You find your comfort in food. Rather than finding comfort in the comforter, you find your comfort in food. God's given this this beautiful gift of sex, and intended it, that, that it would be a very important part of the bonding relationship in a marriage. Of course, procreation as well, but part of that bonding, the oneness experience in marriage. But watch, when I take sex out of its intended context, and I began to gratify sexual desires in a different way, pornography, an affair, At that point, that which God intended to be a good thing becomes a bad thing. Someone has described it like this. As long as the fire is in the fireplace, the house is warm. But when the fire gets out of the fireplace, the house is burned to the ground. I met Sonia in Atlantic, Iowa. I'll be sharing stories with you every night. Stories from people who sat in a conference just like this, and at the end of the conference shared their story with us. Listen to what Sonia said. The first night brought me to tears. I was that woman at the well looking for satisfaction in human relationships. I've been in a two-year sexual relationship. God has convicted me to end this sexual relationship these lessons on honesty, repentance and obedience are exactly what God has been telling me for a while now. Though this uh, through this ministry I'm ready to act on his word to experience the fullness of an obedient life. A second American idol, the idol of entertainment. Again, some examples playing, watching, coaching sports, hunting, fishing, television, internet, social media, video games, gardening, Many years ago, a man wrote a book that, even though it was not spiritual, it was eerily prophetic. The title of the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he was pointing out that the growing entertainment industry in America was almost like a narcotic. It was like a drug that was dulling us, and we were losing our focus and and our sharpness. We were leading a conference in Russellville, Kentucky. During a testimony service, a young man stood up and he said, you don't, most of you don't know this about me, but I'm well known around the world because I am a champion at a specific kind of video game, one of the call-to-duty type of video games. And he says, I, I travel around the world. I compete in, in championships. And he says, I've devoted a lot of my life, a lot of money, a lot of energy to becoming the best of the best he said this week god has convicted me that this game has become an idol in my life so i'm announcing publicly that i'm walking away he had given all of his gaming equipment to his father-in-law told him to sell it and he said i've got to reinvest myself in my marriage and in the calling as a father to my children Again, leading a conference in Thomasville, Georgia, testimony service. A woman came to the mic, standing next to me. And the first thing she did was look over here at her husband, and she affirmed her commitment to her husband and to her marriage. Now, I knew there was a story behind that. Here's what I found out later. She went on to say that uh, she was also giving up Facebook. Told all of her friends, "I'm, I'm going dark on Facebook. Now, here's what we heard after the fact. She was an avid Facebooker. By the way, I've got a Facebook account. Want to be my friend on Facebook? Send me a friend request. I'll be glad to to type you in. Well, in her avid Facebook pursuit, she had discovered an old high school romance. They began to Facebook Messenger each other, and though both were married, They began to find themselves attracted to each other. Essentially, she was committing digital adultery. But during that conference, she heard from God and she recognized the danger of what she was flirting with. And she broke it off, and again, affirming her commitment to her husband and to her marriage. Again, you never know where God's going to speak to somebody. One guy showed up one night at one of our meetings with his golf clubs. Now, obviously, there were some snickers in the crowd. He came to the mic and he said, God's convicted me that I have made golf an idol in my life. And he, had, he was a scratch golfer. He had a very expensive set of clubs. Now, again, I'm not saying it's a sin to play golf. Well, let me qualify. If you saw the way I hit a golf ball, it's close to sinful, all right? I got this ugly slice that, uh, that plagues my golf game. But see, God spoke to him that golf had a hold on his life, usurping the rightful place of Jesus as his Lord. So he announced, I'm giving up golf. I'm selling my clubs. And he was going to give the proceeds to the revival love offering. How about the idol of success, The idol of success, career, status, control, power, and fame. Now, hear me. God wants us to work. We're made in God's image. God is a worker. We're introduced to God in the opening pages of Genesis. And what's he doing? He's he's working. He's creating the universe. He makes Adam. He sets him in the garden. And he says, get to work. Tend the garden. Work is a calling of God. But watch. The moment I begin to attach my personal sense of significance to my work. See, my significance comes in my relationship with God as a child of God. But when I begin to attach my sense of significance to my career, to my work at that point, I'm in danger of making it an idol in my life and beginning to lose focus and lose perspective someone's described it like this you may spend your life climbing up that ladder of success and then one day you'll get to the top and realize you had your ladder on the wrong wall and everything you'd been working for was really nothing in light of eternity i met chris in hartsville south carolina listen to chris's story Before life action came, I thought my job was the most important thing in my life. My profit and loss binder was the most important book in my life. After our revival, I realized my job was an idol that I was putting in front of God. My family and I have made a commitment to God, and I've made a commitment to my wife, that my job would not be number one in my life anymore. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? The idol of possessions. Possessions. House or houses. Car, cars. Furniture, clothing, collections, bank accounts. Now, I do not believe it is sinful to have things. I do not believe the Bible condemns us for for having things, for having possessions. It's when our possessions begin to possess us. Here's how Scripture puts it, Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, Which is what, class? Idolatry. Connect those dots with me. Covetousness is idolatry. Well, what's covetousness? Back to those 10 commandments. The 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's donkey or any of his possessions. Now, what is coveting? I want what you have because you have it and I don't. I don't want it because I need it. I want what you have because you have it, and I don't. Now, very few folks would actually admit to the sin of coveting. But if you push them, they, they might acknowledge, well, I am a little materialistic. And see, I have to live in this certain style of home in a certain neighborhood. I just don't feel good about myself. And there has to be a a certain fashion. And I have to have a certain late model car or truck. And I have to have a certain kind of shoe or purse. Or I just don't feel good about myself. Let's see if this rings true. How many of us are spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like? Let me talk for just a moment about one of your most prized possessions. That smartphone. Now, I'm so thankful for my smartphone. It helps me navigate all over the country, finding places like Cornerstone Baptist Church here in Greensboro. Patty and I, because we live on the road, we eat out a lot. Often I'll walk into a restaurant, we're being seated or waiting for a table, and I'll look around, and there are couple after couple, booths and tables, and what are they doing? They're not talking. They're not having meaningful conversation. They're not reconnecting after a busy day. Got to find out what that ballgame score is. I need that next posting there on Facebook. USA Today, January 2015. The University of Missouri Psychology Department has identified a new disorder, iPhone separation anxiety. They describe it as the stress of being without one's phone, quote, can negatively impact performance on mental tasks. You got time for Pinterest, you got time for Facebook, you got time for Sports Center, but no time for prayer, no time for the Word of God, no time for serving in ministry. One more. People. Spouse, children, friends, boyfriend, girlfriend. And by the way, I'm not the one who said this first. Jesus said it. Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, God says, I'm a jealous God. I, I, I'm not going to share you with anyone or anything. Now, these sins are very subtle. A woman just like that woman that we've talked about this morning, craving approval, craving acceptance, decides, you, my husband, you need to give me that kind of approval and that kind of acceptance, and you keep squeezing and and manipulating and bullying, and you're setting yourself up for failure because, hear me, sister, He doesn't have what you need. Not the deepest needs of your heart. Yes, God intended marriage to be two people serving and loving and encouraging one another. But there are needs that you have, deep emotional needs that only Christ can meet. And if you try to set your husband up in that position, you're setting him up for failure and you for frustration. Idolatry can encroach on our parenting. We love these children. We recognize they're the gifts of God. But if we're not careful, we begin to attach our sense of significance, our sense of success to our children's performance. And we begin to set standards so high it's impossible for them to meet those standards. Those children, rather than our understanding them as gifts from God, they, they become possessions. I met Susan in Picayune, Mississippi. There is a place named Picayune, Mississippi. I've been there. Listen to Susan's story. I'm the mother of three young children and a homemaker. I realized I had made my children an idol in my life and neglected my marriage. I spent all of my time doing for and caring for them instead of focusing on God and then my husband's needs. God spoke to me about being the encourager and the helpmate to my husband that his word says I should be. I'm committing to spend time in his word regularly and not neglect my marriage any longer. You know, pastor, about the time I think I've heard it all, I'll sit down with another pastor. I was in South Georgia. I sat down in this fellow's office and I said, how are you doing? He said, not very well. I said, what's going on? He said, one of my ladies just called and she just chewed me out. I said, what did you do to her? He said, I took her daughter on a mission trip. I said, tell me the story. Her daughter's in high school. The pastor organized a mission trip to South America. She went with him. Down there, she began to catch a vision for sharing the gospel internationally and began to sense God was calling her to the mission field. In her enthusiasm, she came back and shared with her mother, I think God may be calling me to the mission field. Her mother's reaction, she got furious called that pastor, and chewed him out. How dare you take my daughter on a mission trip, and now she wants to be a missionary and go off and leave me. That woman needs to understand, as do we, the safest place for your child is the will of God. Now, I'm not saying the will of God is always safe, but I do know the safest place for any human being is the will of God. Now, if it's God's will that your child live across town, that's where they should be. If it's God's will to plant your child in the heart of a Muslim country to share the gospel, that's where they need to be. See, we raise these children, but they're like arrows according to the Psalms. We shoot them off to obey the Lord. This brings us to our second test. Am I worshiping idols? Again, our initial conversation, you may have initially decided, I'm not having any issue with idolatry, but as we've begun to unpack it in Scripture and through illustrations, hopefully you're beginning to rethink that. So let's see how you're doing on our test questions. Number one, what am I most afraid of losing? Answer this question. I can't live without blank, and you fill in the blank. And if it's anything less than Christ, that's the potential for idolatry. What do I long for or desire most passionately? What are you passionate about? Are you passionate about God and the things of God? Does your passion for God and the things of God at least meet, if not surpass, your passion for other things? Those final moments of the day, you're laying on on your pillow, you're, you're drifting off to sleep, where does your mind go? Those unguarded moments, where does your mind go? What are you passionate about? Where do I run for comfort, joy, or satisfaction? Do I run to the refrigerator? Do I run to the liquor cabinet? Do I run to sports center? Where do I run? What or who makes me feel most secure? And again, speaking to my precious sisters in Christ, if you've placed your security in your husband, you've set you and him up for failure. That deep need of security that you have can only be met in and through Christ. Sir, if you put your security and your ability to earn a living and your ability to, to save and to, to manage your finances, if that's where you have put your security, You've set yourself up for failure. What do I brag about? Tomorrow morning around the water cooler, what are you going to brag about? Your ball club? Your grandkids? When's the last time you just bragged about Jesus? Finally, what do I sacrifice the most for? Here's my observation. What you give the best of yourself to is the indicator of what you love the most. What you give the best of your time, what you give the best of your energies, what you give the best of your financial resources to. Hey, we can stand up and sing worship songs and hymns all day long. But at the end of the day, it's what you give the best of yourself to. That's the better indicator of where your heart really is. I just imagine someone right now is beginning to squirm because the reality is setting in, I've got idols in my life. I didn't realize it. I didn't think about it. I've got idols in my life. So what do I do, Greg? Number one, repent of your idolatry. Back to that opening video that we viewed a few minutes ago. Uh, What is repentance? Uh, Let me give you a, a mental picture. I'm walking one way. I stop. I do an about face, and I'm going in a different direction. It's a compound word in the original language. It literally means to change your mind, to change the way I think about something, but the implication is because I'm changing the way I think. I'm changing my lifestyle decisions as well. Ezekiel fourteen six, thus says the Lord God, repent, turn away from your idols. Now someone's saying, Greg, I, I repented. Vacation Bible school. I repented of my sin and gave my heart to Jesus. Now, you need to be careful. Do not isolate repentance to your initial salvation experience. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance is a lifestyle. In Revelation 2 and 3, remember the seven letters to the seven ancient churches? Six times Jesus calls the members of those churches to repent. Repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance is specific. You're constantly repenting as you discover things in your life that do not align with the will of God. Number one, repent of your idolatry. Number two, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Zechariah 1.3. Read this one out loud with me. Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. You know, 300 times in the Old Testament you find this invitation. Return to me. Now, when God says something once, we need to perk up. But when God says something 300 times, why would he say it so often, so frequently? Well, just like the hymn you sang a few minutes ago. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. In my experience, that's not something that happens immediately or suddenly. There's just this gradual drift. You're not reading your Bible. You're not spending time in prayer and with God each day. You're not confessing sin. You're not keeping relationships right. You begin to get hit and miss in your worship attendance. You're not part of a small group asking for and giving accountability and encouragement to others. And soon you find yourself, as I described this morning, far from God. Going back to our text. Remember he said, I have two things against you. You've committed two evils. What was the first? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, before you gave yourself to the cisterns, to the substitutes, you began by forsaking me, walking away from me. Mark 12, 30. I want us to read this one out loud, and you see the little word all that I've underlined? When we come to that word, I want you to say it a little louder for emphasis. Here we go. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, How am I to love God? My love for God needs to conform to this description. It needs to be a passionate love. It needs to be an inclusive love. I love God with the totality of my being. That's how God deserves to be loved. All my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, some of you are going to walk out tonight and say, he's right. I've got a fight these addictions i've got to fight these idols i've got to fight that pornography i've got to fight that anger whatever it is that's been controlling you more than likely you're going to experience temporary success and then go right back to it here's why lasting success doesn't come in turning away from the idols lasting success comes in falling in love with jesus all over again See, if I am pursuing Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, the totality of my being, how much love is left over for the idols? It's not there, is it? It's not there. So where does this bring us tonight? There at the bottom of your page, you're going to see a response each night. See if this resonates with you tonight, this life in action moment. Lord, I choose to identify and turn from my idols so that I might worship you in spirit and in truth.